We confessed something a moment ago in the creed. We said, I believe in, and one of the list of things toward the end of that list of things we believe was the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? It says wide-ranging application for our lives. I was privileged a few years ago to hear a researcher, psychologist who's been spending his whole lifetime career researching the topic of forgiveness. This person, I'm not sure if they were, they were compelled to do this out of their own life circumstances or they were doing it and, and something happened. I don't know the timing, but this man's mother was murdered. He has been the top researcher in really the world, in the country certainly, His name is C. Everett Worthington. And he made a compelling talk about the process of forgiveness. And he said that research strongly suggests, and there's clinical studies to demonstrate this, that people who use a process and time to pursue healing and forgiveness can get peace through that process and can get to the place where they can say confidently, I have forgiven this person for a really heinous thing that they've done. And of course, not everyone has a murdered relative. It's not like that. We often just have ordinary breaches of relationship. Husbands and wives, children and parents, brothers and sisters, all kinds of co-workers, elders and parishioners, occasionally pastors and parishioners. There are all kinds of breaches of relationship. But the Bible really addresses a very fundamental topic, and it is forgiveness. It's forgiveness from God, and it's forgiveness in the horizontal relationship between people. And it's there, it's taught, as you know. We sung of God forgiving all of our sins just a moment ago in Psalm 103. That's God's forgiveness, and we understand how that happened through Christ. But there's also a process of forgiveness and seeking reconciliation that we have in our text today in Matthew 18. Let me remind you of it again. Look at Matthew 18:15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Thus far the reading of God's word. We've already heard the whole passage read. I'll refer to it more. Let me bring you up to speed if you have been tracking with what we've done in the last few weeks. We started in Matthew 16 with the gospel reading. And Matthew 16 is the wonderful passage where the identity of Jesus needs to be disclosed. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and say, do a sign, Jesus, and prove that you're Messiah. And Jesus warns the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They don't understand this, but then at a moment of clarity, we have the great confession of Peter, which is, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Tremendous peak point 
And just after that, Peter blows it and says, no, Lord, you can't go to Jerusalem and die. We skip 17 in our lectionary readings. And the reason for that is because chapter 17 is the transfiguration. This is a further disclosure of who Jesus is. And we read that in the Sunday just before Lent begins at the end of Epiphany. That's when Transfiguration Sunday is. So the lectionary text moves to chapter 18, and that's why. And if we look at the entire chapter of chapter 18, we can see that the entire chapter is about the process of reconciliation or forgiveness. It's various teachings in relation to it. So how does it begin? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom? Now, why are they talking this way? Because they have just seen the transfigured Jesus. And now this word has gotten out. Only three of them were there, if you remember Peter, James, and John. But the word has gotten out. And now they're talking about their place in the kingdom. Just before this, at the end of 17, Jesus does some powerful work of of miracles. And so now they see Jesus is the Christ. He's going to have power. He's going to become the king of Israel. That's his destiny. And now they're his right-hand men. And what are they saying? Very natural. What are they talking about? Well, who's going to be the chief lieutenant here? I think it's going to be me. I'm Peter. No, no, no. James. No, I'm the man. No, John. Look, he chose me specially. No, this is what they're doing. And now the disciples are dis- disputing about this. Actually, in the, in the parallel passage in ch- Mark chapter 9, the text says, In a heated dispute, they came to him and said, Who then is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So you can see human sinful pride and position and the desire for lordship over another person to be the boss and to be important. This is all at work, and we see it very plain before us. The Bible is a very realistic book in this way, is it not? And so here we have the passage. As it moves throughout, you'll notice that what does Jesus do? Jesus always has great ways to deal with these things. What does he do? He brings a child to himself and sits him down and says, Truly I say to you, amin, amin, truly, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You won't even get in unless you're converted like a child. Now, what does he mean by that? I don't think he means that all children exhibit perfect humility, because we know that is not true. (laughs) That is factually, experientially false. No, but in that society, children had no position or prominence. Children, can you imagine this? Can you imagine everyone around you not thinking you're the most important thing in the world? In our society today, and I think it's a good change to some extent, but in our society today, children have many, many, many rights. We have government agencies that are on that thing. But in the ancient world, and again, I'm not saying good or bad, I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, to understand the text, children had no position, no rights, no prominence. They were had no status of importance. They were only a responsibility for someone. So this is the, the context in which Jesus says, unless you're like this child who has no status, no importance, no value, unless you're like that, you don't get the kingdom of God. You don't see it. And of course, that text, I think, 
is, is a wonderful text. And he ends it with saying, in verse 5, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So you can see how it's building into the church is a place where status of importance is going to come through what? Well, through the basin and the towel. This is a stylized foot washing device. That's what this is. Stylized service device. I mean, it's nice. But that's what it's for. I put it on every Sunday and I remind myself, this is a towel. That's what this is. This is not a crown. It's a towel. That's what it is. And so he's going to make this point, and he's already made it in various ways. It'll come more toward the end of the gospel. So we come to the very text, 15 and following. I think I want to break this into three simple uh, concepts, simple passages as we walk through it, the process of this discipline of the church, the principles of church discipline, and the purpose of church discipline. Now, the first thing to note on the process, which is verses 15 to 17, is there's a presupposition that's unstated, but very understood. And that presupposition is this. The assembly of the people of God that is going to happen after Christ's resurrection, after the ascension, in Pentecost and so forth. The the assembly that's going to happen, that's the term church. I will build my church, chapter 16. The church is going to be composed of people that are sinners. That's the assumption. You don't need a process to deal with sin if there's no sin. But there's sin. This is so clear. We understand this, but it's important to just say it one more time. Because a lot of people come to churches and they expect that there's no sin in it. They expect that there's no breaches of relationship. They expect that, well, look, they've got their doctrine right. They've got their liturgy right. They do the right things here. They've got these good ministries. Therefore... You know, put people up on a pedestal. I was having a conversation about this recently, about someone that was put on a pedestal and then they fell and now it's sad. Yep, don't do that because this passage tells us by the, by the very sense that it's there that there will be sin in the assembly of people. A Sunday school teacher had concluded her lesson and wanted to make sure that everybody had the point. So she said, can anyone tell me, children, what you must do before you may obtain forgiveness of sin? And a little child said, sin. You can't get forgiveness until you sin. True enough. And that's what's in indicated here. Now notice the, the very passage, verses 15 to 17. This passage tells us about a routine or a process for addressing discipline when a person sins. Jesus, see, here he does something different. He, he does cite the law. He cites the law from Deuteronomy 19. But he takes it in a slightly different way. If you remember, in the Old Testament, only by two or three witnesses may a person be put to death, Deuteronomy 19.15. Which is to say... If you don't like someone, you can't just accuse them and then have the judicial process set in place and now you get your enemy murdered. 
That shows a pretty evil heart. But that's the kind of thing the law prevents that by making a process be the case, making a verification process be the case. So no one can be put to death under the Mosaic law without the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus cites that passage, but he does something slightly different with it. He makes the process linear. He turns it into a chronological process. Instead of two or three witnesses showing up at a judge and saying, this person did this wrong, therefore he's guilty, he says, no, you need to turn that into a process. And the process, as we know, is, first of all, if your brother sins, go privately to him. That's the first thing. And perhaps you can win your brother there. This is very practical. Many times I've had this happen to me over and over again through my 30 years of ministry. Someone will come to me and say, someone did this. And I said, well, if someone sins against you, and there's a variation in the text here, it, doesn't, it may not mean if someone sins against you. It may just be if your brother sins so there's two readings of this. But I think either way, what is the responsibility of the person who notices that someone has sinned? What's the responsibility of the individual? Do you see it? To go privately to address that. Now, that's a very simple act to do. It's hard sometimes. But that is what Jesus tells us to do. And so much of the problems within the church could be helped by that first action. Do it in the right way. We've talked about this many times. Do it humbly. Get the log out of your eye before you go to your brother. But do it. Do it. Go privately. Now, if the private meeting doesn't go so well, then we have another step. The step then is, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you. Now, notice in the first step, what's happening the person that's being accused of being a sinner has a chance to respond. That's very important. Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do or that they didn't understand the full circumstances? Why did you say this? Oh, well, because this, this, this. And if you understood that, you would say, oh, I understand. It's okay. I heard that you did X, Y, or Z. And I'm very concerned about it. The person responding. You heard wrong. That's not what happened. I mean, that clears it right up. And so much of the problems of relationships just need to be addressed at that very simple level. And can you see that verifies the truth of the facts? That's a very important part of it. But let's suppose that all happens well. Then it's take two with you, one or two with you, so that by the mouth of the two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. I've used this in the past, but I'll use it again for good dramatic effect. There's a man named Joe, and he shot his woman down, and he's going to head down to Mexico. This is a Jimi Hendrix song, in case you're not familiar with this. Hey, Joe. And so you go and you say, hey, Joe, I heard you shot your woman down. And he says, yes, I shot her down to the ground. And you say, okay, that's wrong. You need to repent of this and so forth. Nope, not going to do it. On the other hand, you can go and say, hey, Joe, I heard you shot your woman down. And he says, no, I didn't. She's right in the next room. She's alive. You say, 
I still believe you shot your woman down. So now I'm going to get two or three witnesses to come back and say, hey, Joe, you shot your woman down. And he says, no, go to the next room. She's there and alive and you can speak with her. And the two or three witnesses say, hey, man, you're crazy. This guy, you're making stuff up. You, so this is a verification of the facts. So the two or three witnesses' job is not to totally back up the first guy who goes. It's to verify the facts of the case. And good church discipline always verifies the facts of the case. This is really important for us to do. And, of course, there's another step, and that is if they won't listen, if there's no hearing, even with two or three witnesses and the facts are confirmed, then tell it to the ecclesia, the gathered assembly, the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, when it says church, we have to look at that in different ways. Some denominations, many Presbyterian denominations, would say what you tell it to is the session of elders. And the session of elders then acts representatively for the church. So you don't go blabbing this out in the middle of the worship service. You go to the session. The session acts as a representative body of the church. That's a reading of it. Some people use it that way. The way we have done it in our communion of churches typically is we say, tell it to the church. We mean representative heads of households for families. That's how we've done it. And that helps because now you're not announcing things to a congregation of young children and people that don't understand of maybe you know, unfortunate details of, of events and these kinds of things. So there is kind of a, a way of working around it in, say, very congregational churches. Tell it to the church might mean a church meeting with everybody there that's a member and you tell it to every single person. So we can work on that in different ways. But definitely it's telling it to some group that use all of the church resources to call this person to repentance. And that's the pur- purpose here. If he refuses to listen to them or listen to the church, so the church has been now pursuing this person. Because as I said, the whole purpose of this passage is to get reconciliation. Remember the verses just before this? The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And the story is, if a man has a hundred sheep and one has gone astray, will he not go find him? He rejoices more over the one that's found than over the ninety-nine that haven't. So, if your brother sins, that's how this text is connected. The purpose is always retrieving, reconciling, bringing them back. Forgiveness, that's the purpose. It's not punishment. It's to get reconciliation. It's to win the brother. Well, secondly, the principles of church discipline. I'll be a little more brief on this. The authority of the church on earth here refers, I think, to the body of Christ, the church. And Christ has left us with a certain kind of authority. Notice what it says, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven... And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is to say, the church is operating with orders from heaven and things have already been taking place in heaven by the time the actions of the church take place. Assuming the church is faithful to the task, then it's already happened in heaven. Do you see that? Verse 18. And notice this in verse 19. And again, I say to you, if two... 
of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Please notice uh, verse 20. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, this is a context of the church. So don't think this is, I don't think Jesus means if two people get together and decide, okay, we're going to take down the president. Let's agree that's going to happen. No, this is a context of the church. The assembled people of God, and we know there's order to the church, there's offices in the church. The church, when the church gathers and agrees on these kinds of things, these binding and loosing things, we can have the assurance that God has been working from heaven. And that's our responsibility. And so it's really a matter of authority. One illustration about authority that I ran into is regarding two battleships that were assigned to do training exercises. And the night came and it was dark. And this is a time when you have signals more so than other kinds of communication devices. And so someone, a light shows up and it looks like we're going to run into this other ship. The captain says, signal that ship. We're on a collision course. Advise you to change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, I am the captain. Change your course 20 degrees. Came back, I am a seaman second class. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. How could this second class seaman not respond to me, the captain of the ship? And he spat out, I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I am a lighthouse. That's authority. That's authority. The the authority of heaven in the body of Christ is located in the church, in in the local congregations led by qualified leaders. And the authority is when the church acts to bind or to loose, which means receive and receive someone back for restoration, we have the confidence that heaven has already acted. And that's a great confidence. Let me conclude with the last point, which is really the purpose of church discipline. It's very subtle, but it's very plain. Verse 15b. All of this is for winning your brother. This passage is often seen as a guide for disciplinary action, and that it is. But you'll notice the point of it is the practical guide as to how a disciple can imitate his father's concern for wandering sheep. For wandering sheep. Sheep wander. They, they leave. They go off on their own. I learned at some point. Sheep can die just from being themselves because all kinds of things get caught up into their... Into their fur. That's not right. Their coat. They get caught up in it and they can just, they can get stopped up and they can die from just being sheep. They don't even have to do anything crazy like go play with lions. They can just die from themselves. And that's what is being said here. When a sheep wanders off, the shepherd has to go get them. And that's an important task. The church has been given that task to pursue wandering sheep. Now we do that officially as our as our task as elders, as a session of elders. Uh, Certainly that's my calling. 
to pursue wandering sheep. But I think it's, there's an application for all of us, isn't there? You probably know people in your life that you could characterize as wandering sheep. You know, they're, they're straying away. And who knows what lions and jackals and bears are out there to take them down. And I think we all, and this, this passage, by the way, tell it to the church I don't think that should be just the elders. I think that really does mean in some way, however we do it, it gets to the people of the church because the people of the church may have more traction in another person's life than I do or that another elder does. It's you. You, as a congregation, can reach wandering sheep that I can't reach or that any of the elders can reach. You see? You might have a unique connection to someone. And this passage authorizes you to be part of the process to pursue them. I hope you hear that. With all the wandering people in your life, be empowered by the Spirit of God to reach them, to seek them, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the very first verse before this passage. Let me conclude with a comment on this passage from Robert Ferrer Capon. He wrote the book, The Supper of the Lamb, which is an exquisite book that kind of gives you a bunch of recipes and things like this. He was an Episcopal priest. Don't listen with too much scrutiny about his theology here. Just get the main gist of what he says. I think what he says is a wonderful illustration. He says, In heaven, there are only forgiven sinners. There are no good guys. No upright, successful types who, by dint of their own integrity, have been accepted into the great country club in the sky. Isn't that a great line? Heaven's not the great country club in the sky that you merited to get in somehow. There are only failures, only those who have accepted their deaths in their sins and who have been raised up by the king who himself died that they might live. But in hell too, There are only forgiven sinners. The sole difference, therefore, between heaven and hell is that in heaven, the forgiveness is accepted and passed along, while in hell it is rejected and blocked. In heaven, the death of the king is welcomed and becomes the doorway to new life in the resurrection. In hell, the old life of the bookkeeping world is insisted on. And becomes forever. In hell, the old life of the bookkeeping world is insisted on and becomes forever. In other words, you keep trying to get a pound of flesh for everything that was done wrong to you. You can't let it go. You can never forgive. You can never rejoice in a person's repentance. You can never Let that go in forgiveness. That's the difference between heaven and hell. I think that's a brilliant illustration. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We do pray now that we could rejoice in the forgiveness that we've been freely given. And we pray that we would also freely forgive. And we pray that as we seek to be faithful as a church, that You would give us wisdom in dealing with those straying sheep That we would have the confidence to know that as we act in faith with the process Jesus have given, you've given to us, that we can know that what has been bound in heaven has been bound in heaven. But we pray, Lord, 
for all those that have had to be removed from this church, that whatever we loose will also be loosed. May that be so. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.